Welcome to the SCORE Small Business Success Podcast, Been There, Done That. To get free mentoring services, as well as to see the wide variety of resources available for small businesses, visit our website at www.score.org or call 1-800-634-0245. And now, here's your host, Dennis Zink. Episode number 13, Intellectual Property. Fred Dunnier joins me today in our studio as co-host, score mentor, and our audio engineer. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, Dennis. Our guest today is attorney Joseph Long. Welcome to Been There, Done That. Hello. Thank you for having me. Joseph Long is a licensed professional engineer and patent attorney. He has prepared and prosecuted hundreds of patent applications for technology leaders such as Google, Microsoft, IBM, AT&T, Cisco, and Boeing, as well as technology startups and universities. Joseph has an extensive R&D experience in electronics and computing systems. He earned a BS in engineering and applied science from Caltech. He conducted PhD research in electrical and computer engineering at Georgia Tech and earned both an MBA and a JD from Georgia State University. Joe, if I may call you Joe, what are the different types of intellectual property and how do they differ? Joe is fine. There are four basic types of intellectual property. There are the copyright, trademark, patents, and trade secrets. Copyrights are rights in original works and creative expressions held by their creator. Ideas and discoveries aren't generally protected by copyrights, but the way in which they are expressed may be. Trademarks are names or designs that identify a product or a service as being from a particular provider. Examples might be McDonald's or Ford Mustang. Patents protect ideas or inventions. The rights are held by the inventor, and the rights are to prevent others from making, using, selling, or importing the invention. Trade secrets are generally confidential information controlled by the owner for their benefit. A popular example is the formula for Coca-Cola. Okay. um, How should a, a business protect its copyright interests? A work is protected under copyright the moment that it's created and fixed in a tangible form. Examples of tangible work may be drawings, physical models, graphic designs, written text, photographs, videos, or computer, computer code. In general, registration of copyrights is completely voluntary. However, you have to register your copyright with the government if you wish to bring a lawsuit for copyright infringement. It's worth mentioning that a lot of people speak of the poor man's copyright, which is a practice of sending a copy of your work to yourself There is no provision in in any copyright law regarding this protection. Um, It's generally not suitable or as any type of substitute for registration. Generally, only the author or creator of a work has a rightful claim to its copyright. An important exception to this is a notion of works made for hire. When a work is made for hire, an employer is considered the author, even if an employee actually created the work. Employment or contractor agreements or contracts generally include an explicit agreement that works created as part of a work for hire are the rights of the employer. A business should seek to retain the copyrights to all materials generated in relation to its products or services through such agreements. So an employer would have an agreement with an employee at the time that the employee is hired to explicitly uh, define the ownership of any works produced by that employee? That's right. Generally, there's IP um, an IP component to an employment agreement would state that any work 
any creative works generated as part of the employment would be uh, retained by the employer. But it is implicit even if it's not in an agreement. It, it is, but it can be a bit complicated when you're talking about an employee versus a contractor. So it's best to make it explicit. Um, this is particularly true with um, hiring contractors to develop software code because that can be protected by copyright and generally a business wants to retain those. It's interesting. I recently uh, started writing a business column for the daily newspaper um, on a weekly basis. And it was very clear that they own the copyright. They can reproduce it in any fashion. And uh, I get paid nothing um, no matter what they do with it down the road. So uh, I, I guess, and, and having been a publisher myself, what we used to simply do is put copyright C with the year and then all rights reserved. Does that kind of cover uh, a work in a magazine, for example, or a newspaper? That, that's acceptable for providing notice to the public. You actually needn't even do that. The copyright is, as we said, it exists the instant that the work is put in a tangible form. Putting others on notice that someone else owns the copyright is always a good idea, uh, along with other uh, intellectual properties such as trademarks and patents. Notification is, is useful. And then I recall we used to send in a form to the government, and it wasn't for every issue, but it would be for maybe once a year. Uh, is that the proper way of doing that? There, there is a, a registration process that can go on with the um, the government to uh, register copyrights. And while it's voluntary and not necessary to establish the copyright, it is required before you, um, you try to do any uh, litigation with the copyright. Okay. And how should a business protect its trademarks? Rights in a mark are, are, can be established simply based on using the mark in commerce without having to register it. Um, however, much like with copyrights, uh, federal trademark registration can provide a lot of various legal advantages. When you merely claim the rights to a mark, you can mark it with a symbol TM, as you're probably familiar with, often applied as a superscript. Uh, this is a designation to, as we say, put the public on notice or to alert the public that one is claiming ownership of the mark. Um, regardless of whether you've ever filed an application, you can use this this TM designation. However, you can only use the federal registered trademark symbol, which is a capital R in a circle, after the um, United States Patent and Trademark Office has actually registered the mark, w which is done by filing an application and going through a, a, a small pr uh, procedure. Um, the, the purpose of a trademark is to prevent an unapproved source from providing a good or service in a way that might confuse the consumers as to who the actual source is. Um, so accordingly, a business that's operating with a trademark um, should always seek to protect the inappropriate use of the mark by others to retain its value. I know that uh, Apple Computer seems to be trying to protect the lowercase i followed by anything. Uh, I assume that's a... A matter of a lot of discussion in that particular uh, field is, is where that line gets drawn. That brings an interesting question to the point of trademark infringement where the, the bar is, can a consumer or a member of the public be confused? In other words, if I start making an iRadio, is someone likely to think that that's an Apple product? Um, you know, arguably perhaps. So, so there's a, there's a, uh, complication there because typically to trademark something, it has to be a specific term or symbol or design. Whereas, you know, the I anything is obviously a little, a little broad, but you know, the, the, the uh, complication is not, con not confusing the consumers. 
Well, it reminds me of Citicorp, uh, Citigroup, uh, CITI, and they use that for different products, et cetera. And I, I believe uh, you could use Citi with CITY, I would think, but probably not CITI with anything. But isn't it product by product specific? In other words, don't you get a mark based on uh, a certain type of product so that if you use something that's totally different, like clothing, for example, then anybody could use that. Right. Well, there's two interesting points there. The, um, regarding the city CITI versus city CITY, the more fanciful a term is, um, or, or misused. And, and by mi- misused, I guess I, I should clarify that. Um, for example, apple is a type of fruit. So to use it with a computer is, is, is a little unique simply in its use. The, the word Google in the spelling that Google, that the company Google uses it is a made up word. So, um, when you, when you make up a word, it, 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 the rights to it are a little more solid because you're not trying to, um, claim ownership of something in the dictionary. Uh, as to the, um, the question of, uh, the use category, when you apply for a trademark, you generally select a one or more categories by either defining the category or using a predefined category. And, then your trademark is effective within that category area. Um, as an example, I, I don't know particularly what categories McDonald's has used for their trademark on McDonald's, but it is probably not in automobiles. So if you were to start a new automobile company called McDonald's, that might not be a, um, uh, a trademark infringement issue with the McDonald's hamburger company. So. Yeah, that makes sense because you can't own ev- everything. Um, and uh, it makes sense that it's in categories and that you have to select those categories. What if the categories change or you add on? Like iTunes might add on to something that they had never uh, conceived of doing. And then they add on a new kind of product and they call it iWatch or something. Can they add to that or is that going to be a problem? I, I believe you can. Okay. All right. What types of things What types of things can be patented? Now we're really getting into your neck of the woods here with your patents. <laughs> Okay, well, um, generally any, anything that, that anyone conceives can be, can be patented. It can be any useful process, machine, manufacturer, or composition of matter. A process can be any act or method. A machine is fairly obvious. Uh, a manufacturer refers to any articles that are made. Um, and a composition of matter generally relates to chemical compositions or mixtures. These classes of categories taken together include pretty much everything that can be made by man or any processes for making any products. A process or method can include a method implemented on a machine. Such a machine may include a computing machine, and this is generally the basis for claiming inventions that may be implemented using computer software, or that is to say, instructions executing on a computing machine. Outside of the realm of what can be patented are abstract ideas and laws of nature. These are generally not um, afforded patent protection. I know that uh, back when I was a programmer back in the early days, the only protection there was uh, copyrights, which, after all, it's computer code, it's written, and it can be clearly identified. Uh, I think it was, what, the VisiCalc or the Lotus 123 era, all of a sudden software patents started becoming uh, legal and viable. Do you believe that that has uh, created issues in terms of innovation and or uh, the the ongoing development of of new software. 
there's an interesting overlap of uh, intellectual property when it comes to software. Because uh, as, as we talked about, the creative expression of a work is protected by copyright. So the literal code that is that was typed in by a programmer to implement a a computer let's say an algorithm or a computer-based process it, it is covered by copyright which means the copyright laws protect that the owner of it say a software company from having that code literally copied into someone else's code uh, patents actually cover a different thing patents cover ideas so if you have a computer program that does a specific task by carrying out a set of steps that is effectively a machine similar to you know how a car carries out the task of moving someone by converting chemical energy into mechanical energy and putting it through a transmission and turning wheels so implementing a, a method that would have otherwise been patented on a computer doesn't make it unpatentable so as long as as long as the the process that you're implementing on a computer is um, is useful, novel, and non-obvious, which are the requirements for receiving a patent. The the material is is what we call patentable subject matter and can be patented. It's um, it you know it it, it does raise some complicated issues and it is it can be difficult dealing with patents that cover computer implemented methods because the current standard is that the the methods have to have some connection to a machine in some way, a physical machine, and not be merely abstract concepts. And they have to um, substantially transform something so that they're 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 actually involved in the physical world in some way. There are, um, you know, I watch Shark Tank, and a lot of people do probably that are listening to this, and they very the sharks very often uh, ask the uh, uh, the guests that are trying to raise the money have you filed for a patent? And they'll frequently refer to either a design patent or a utility patent. Could you explain the difference between those? A design patent generally covers the physical appearance or the form of a product, while a utility patent covers what the product actually does. And these are two different types of patents. Design patents can be very um, uh, limited in their value at times simply because you can get around uh, infringing, a competitor could get around infringing a design patent by simply making something look a little different. Whereas um, a, a well-drafted uh, utility patent, a well-drafted utility claim will exactly spell out what it is that a thing does and anything, no matter what it looks like or how it's made, if it falls within that definition of what is being usefully done, will infringe the patent. So it provides a lot stronger and more valuable protection generally. Where in the development of a, a business uh, should the patent process be looked into? Whenever a an invention is made, really, whenever there's a eureka moment by an inventor to where they they realize that they may have come upon something that is novel and non obvious, that's a good time to to maybe start to look into is is there um, other prior art out there that might prevent me from getting a patent, and if not, then maybe considering filing for a patent application, um, simply because the U.S. patent system is now a first-to-file system. So if if um, if you have a great idea and don't file it, and then a month from now someone else does, and they file it, they're you know they they will likely end up with the the rights over yours. But um, you know, in terms of a, of a 
business, there are, you know, obviously other um, economic decisions to be made based on when it when it makes sense from a, a cost perspective to make the investment of pursuing patent protection on a product. And, you know, you know, the balance between these two criteria of, you know, protecting your eureka moment as early as you can, and then also making making the best business decision from an economic perspective, that that balance has to be weighed out by a, a business owner. What is required for a, um, a patent application? Well, to uh, eventually be um, issued as an actual patent, your the invention that you're seeking to protect in the patent application has to be useful, novel, and non-obvious. The bar for usefulness is very low because everything can be used as something essentially. So uh, we, we, we won't dig into that. But the uh, novelty basically means that no one else has ever described it anywhere in any publication or uh, offered it for sale or put it in another patent application. Um, and, and that would be, that would be like the entire invention with all, all of the elements of the invention included. Obviousness um, generally deals with would the new idea have been obvious to one of ordinary skill in the art given the prior art? And so the way this boils down is if there are three or four aspects of your invention that no one ever really put together before, so they are novel, this thing never existed, but these three or four different aspects exist, you know, are well known in other publications or are already offered for sale and all you did was put them together, then that would have been obvious to put them together. And the, um, the, the, the test that the patent office uses for that is, you know, would, would have it been obvious for, uh, to one of ordinary skill in the art? As for the actual patent application, obviously you need to have, the, you know, this idea, which hopefully is useful, novel, or non-obvious, or else you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. But once you have this idea, you have to have a, a full written description of it that, it, that, that is ena- enabling, which means that it would, it would enable one or teach one of ordinary skill in the art to make or use the invention without undue experimentation. So once you have this full description, you also have to have with it, drawings of anything that you're claiming to be part of the invention um, and as well as a set of claims that very narrowly specify what the or, or I should say very very specifically describe what it is that the invention entails and then there are also other forms that have to be filed with the patent application such as you know an oath saying that you're the original inventor and um, a, you know a transmittal form and fees and these things are generally prepared by the patent attorney who files the application. I think a lot of uh, inventors try to skirt the patent process or the expense of acquiring a patent by keeping it a trade secret. Also, they don't want to um, publish their invention because they're afraid somebody who doesn't care about uh, patent protection, say, in another country, might just steal it and, and get away with it and just, just do it long enough to, to steal their business. Do you have any advice or, or thoughts on that particular in- situation? Well, the, um, the, you are right in, in the question, um, making the point that you, when you file a patent application, you're making a deal with the public. You're completely teaching everyone about your invention. You're explaining to anyone how to make or use the invention in exchange for a limited monopoly. So for, for, for a brief period, you get to be the only person that can make you sell, import it. But the, the, the motivation that the, the, the public policy behind this is, you are forced at the very beginning to tell everyone all about it so people can can start the next round of advancement on it so the the point of patenting from the um policy perspective is to is to accelerate or advance technology development as far as wanting to avoid that and maintaining a trade secret that's always an option if what your technology entails is not easily re- 
easily reverse engineered. Um, most technical products that are mechanical, electrical, and possibly even chemical can be analyzed to determine how to how to make another version of it. Um, and you know, trade secret is is um you know can be powerful, but it's basically a, just a contractual agreement amongst anyone who knows about the implementation of your technology to not tell anyone else, which doesn't have the teeth of a patent, which prevents anyone from doing it, whether they learned it from you or stole it from you or figured it out on their own two years later, you, you know, the, the patent, the patent rights are, are very strong. So. I'm going to get back to uh, um, trademark for a moment and then relate that to a question I have about patents in the um, uh, having had trademarks. Um, and when you have a registered mark, uh, you have to protect that mark. It's up to you to police the mark. And there's not uh, trademark police out there that will do it if you don't. So is that true with a patent as well? Do you have to, say, send a letter out or have your attorney send a letter and say, you know, I think you may be infringing my patent? How does that work? Well, it, 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 isn't, it isn't the same exactly. And, and, and the reason for that is because the purpose of a trademark is to prevent confusion of the public. So if I'm company A and I'm allowing company B to use my trademark and I'm not stopping them from doing it, it's it, it you can understand where it's hard for me, company A, to later claim I don't want company C using it um, because I'm allowing the public to be confused. I've already allowed it. There's the protecting the public from confusion is no longer an issue. So because trademarks have that quality or that bar for offense or infringement based on not not non-confusing the, uh, the consumer base. Um, it makes it a lot different because the, you know, as we've discussed, the policy behind a patent is to incentivize innovators to share and, and publicly distribute their innovations to allow advancement and, and education of the, of the public and other, you know, other participants and, and to reward them or incentivize them with a, with a, with a brief limited monopoly. Um, and for that reason, the, the patent right is, is a little bit a little, a little bit more analogous almost to a, uh, a real property, right? You know, in, in other words, you know, I don't, I don't have to make sure that no one else is living at my house or, or else I can't come in later and charge them rent. Someone doesn't get to own my house because they happen to have spent the night there, right? So it's, um, you know, and, and that's not a perfect analogy because, you know, of course there are, there are exceptions to, to that on both sides, but it's, um, it, there's a different policy behind it. So it, they're not, they're, the requirement to protect your your trademark is is it doesn't really exist in patents or to the extent it does it doesn't it's not as um as great of a requirement. What is a provisional patent application? Well, uh, because a patent application can be a, a very complicated document and is generally expensive to prepare, and there are expensive filing fees involved. There's there's a um another alternative called a provisional patent application that is really just a, a placeholder in the patent office for one year. Um, it's, um, it, it's similar to a regular patent application, which we call a non-provisional patent application, but it doesn't, it generally doesn't include claims, or at least it doesn't have to. And it's generally a little briefer and maybe not as formal of a document. And the filing fees are a little less. So you would generally file a provisional patent application to go ahead and lock in your filing date because the date you file it is still the date that you're, it'll be considered that your invention arrived at the patent office. Um, and then that, and, and then you have one year in which to file your non-provisional patent application. So it holds your place in line for a year and it provides you that one year to test the market or to find investors or to make sure this is a product you want to pursue. So it gives you a little bit of a, of an option, I guess. What is the process and timeline for pursuing patent protection? 
speaking specifically to a non-provisional patent application, the application is prepared and filed um, by the generally by a patent attorney, um, and that process can generally take a month or two, depending on um, how long it takes to prepare it, and also how long it takes the patent attorney to interview the inventor and get the all the understanding together and make the drawings and and then and then put all the documents in place and file them. So you know that occurs up up at the at the beginning, and then generally a year or two, or sometimes even three years later the patent office will issue a first office action on the patent application. Um, this first office action is generally a completely a rejection. Um, what the patent office is generally doing there is they're, throw, they're finding all the prior art they can and then essentially throwing the ball back into the court of the inventor of saying, this is all the art I found and you know for these reasons it, it, these things show that your invention is not either novel is either not novel or that it's obvious and then letting the inventor explain to them why that's not the case. So, um, and, and the inventor will then respond to that office action. Generally their attorney prepares that response and, um, and that can include interview, having an interview with the uh, patent examiner. Um, so like I said, this, this happens, you know, generally quite a gap after filing the actual, um, initial patent application. And then that can happen, um, multiple times. In other words, there can be a back and forth of these office actions and office action responses with the patent office. And eventually, if the examiner agrees with an argument that's made or the claims of the patent have been adjusted to something that the patent examiner feels is novel and non-obvious over all of the prior art that they've been able to find, there will be a notice of allowance. And then the patent can issue as a, a as a U.S. patent. Is the patent office aware of other patents that are being filed subsequent during that uh, during that waiting period? In other words, if I file for a patent and it's going to take three years and six months from now somebody else files for a patent which would conflict, are they monitoring that whole situation to make sure that, that one doesn't get ahead of the other or, or that, that there aren't any other conflicts? The patent office is aware of applications that are – filed and in queue to, to, at the same time. And uh, because we have a first-to-file system now, the patent office would be aware of an application that was filed after another one when they were both still pending or and maybe even hadn't even, had, had not been um, examined yet. And in that instance, the first-filed patent application may be prior art against the second-filed patent application depending on the disclosure in the first one and the claims of the second one. Should should you expect your attorney to do any of the prior art investigation, or is that totally left to the uh, patent examiner? Usually, the inventor will, on their own, do some searching of, of of the prior art, just seeing if someone else is making the product, or maybe even looking in the patent database. Uh, generally, they'll have their patent attorney do a more a more exhaustive uh, search on the patent database. We call this a prior art search or a patentability search, and the patent. The patent attorney may also hire a search company uh, on, on behalf of the client to do that. And this is useful to the patent attorney and, and the client while or the inventor while developing the patent application because it helps them kind, kind of focus and direct their their claims to things that may that that may not be in the prior art already, which can simplify the examination process. Are are these waters only really navigable? By using a patent attorney, I mean, can a layman file a, an application? I mean, maybe they're allowed to, but is that really advised? Uh, obviously, I have a bit of a bias in this, but I I would say, you know, if I could go back to 
the uh, myself working as an engineer and an inventor before I became a patent attorney, I, I would honestly give them the advice to never try to file their own patent application. I, I might say that, you know, you might, you might be all right in filing a provisional patent application if you're very, very careful simply because it's a, it's a little bit of a, um, of a reduced complexity process, but there are still things in there that it would be good to know that I think, you know, the typically a inventor or engineer wouldn't know these things. And then also with the provisional, you're later going to have a patent attorney draft the, the non, non-provisional, the full patent application. But, you know, I had mentioned claims, which are the most important part of the patent. There's these, there are these numbered sentences at the end of a, of a patent application and then the, the, the subsequent patent. And the claims are, are, are very important because they define, you know, we like to say they're analogous to the meets and bounds on a property deed. They precisely define the, uh, the, what the invention is and, and what the property owner of the patent owns by having the patent. Um, drafting of these claims is, uh, is very, very complicated and it, it generally takes a long time to, to learn how to do that and what, what the, the meaning of, of every, uh, of every single word in the claim, you know, imparts into the claim. So, so, yeah. So I would assume that if you ever have to defend that patent and you didn't have a patent attorney involved in the beginning, that patent attorney would have a lot of, uh, effort and expense to come up to speed with what the whole patent deals with in the, in the first place. Yes. I mean, the, generally the person who would litigate a patent, uh, um, later down the road would not be the same person who prepared the patent, um, simply because that those are two very different specialties. Uh, so, so that's less the concern, although, you know, there, there's certainly an aspect of that is the bigger concern is that a, a pro se application, which is one that, 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 that the inventor writes themselves, they're, they're generally pretty weak and the, and the claims are generally not well drafted and will quickly become too narrow. And, you know, and, and, and when you're working on a patent application, you do, get to speak to the patent examiner at the patent office and they can advise you and kind of guide you in a certain way, but without the experience to know how to not let them limit your application, your, your patent claims too much by, uh, you know, you know, during an amendment process that that's, um, there, there are a lot of things that the patent attorney would, would know to do that, that would, that would essentially end up with a more valuable patent in the end. So what are the typical costs associated with patenting? Well, unfortunately, patenting can be quite expensive. The um, the the in- initial expenses are in the 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 researching, preparation, and drafting and filing of a patent application, which, depending on the complexity of a patent, uh, these days generally ranges from five to ten thousand dollars. And I've certainly seen ones that are more expensive than that. You know, a very simple uh, application can be a little less than that. A provisional application can obviously be um, less than that. Um, and then. There's also when that's filed, there's a filing fee to the patent office that um, varies depending on the size of your business, basically. And that filing fee can be between four hundred and sixteen hundred dollars. Um, obviously, the smaller your company is, the less uh, lower that fee is. Um, you know, and, and then we mentioned that there's a, a prosecution um, that, that takes place later where there's office actions and responses to office actions. The preparation of those responses by the patent attorney, which may also include interviewing the examiner. Um, those generally cost, you know, two or three thousand dollars a piece. And then hopefully after that happens, there will be an issue, issued patent. And then there's an issue fee that's paid to the patent office of between, uh, $240 and $960, depending on, um, the size of the company. And, and I, and I should note that these fees at the patent office are often changing. So, 
Um, don't um, uh, don't think that those numbers are absolute. And then once a patent is issued, there are maintenance fees that are paid on into the future. So so it, unfortunately, it can be very expensive. But you know, a patent is an asset, much like a, a piece of land. And um, especially for for a technology company to have a a patent on a way of doing something or a, a machine that does something or a way of manufacturing something means that no one else can do that. And it's, you know, so, so it's quite valuable. So there is a, um, you know, there is a, a trade-off of expense to, to value imparted there. How long do the patents last? A U.S. patent generally lasts 17 to 20 years, depending on how long ago the original application was filed. What type of uh, research can be done to determine if an invention may be patentable? Well, the inventor um, of an invention will often know what type of material is out there in in the field. Um, it, it is important to do in addition to knowing what's what's in the what's in the marketplace. So, in other words, um, you know, I, I might invent a new type of uh, you know, let's say a computer monitor, and you know, I know what they sell at Best Buy, but that. That isn't the end of it. I, you know, the reason why you also want to do patentability searches or prior art searches is because there may be some new technology that's being developed in a university or that, you know, a company, uh, came up with several years ago and filed a patent application on that has never been, um, brought to market. So, um, you know, in addition to the, you know, the obvious research of, you know, who's selling what in the marketplace, doing a, a, a prior art search in the patent database and maybe even in, you know, in scholarly journals is, is, uh, is often useful. So if you if you have the patent uh, granted uh, for a period of time that uh, seventeen to twenty year period, and you never actually produce the product, um, does the patent still hold for that period? Or can someone else come in and do it and say, "Well, you didn't really do it, so I'm going to do it"? Um, it, it generally does. You you um you know your your, your rights to the patents are uh, you know that's there's a, a presumption of validity to a patent that you. You know that, that that you actually legitimately own the patent rights if the patent has been issued to you, and and there's no requirement that you make it. If if you're not making it and someone else is interested in making it, they may contact you to to purchase a license on it, which is effectively, you know, p- paying you a, a a rent or a royalty to let them use the, the your rights. Should someone worry about infringing a patent owned by someone else? When you're when you're making and selling a product, it's it is it's certainly worth at least evaluating whether you are infringing anyone else's patents. Um, this is uh, important because you you want to avoid the liability of having someone show up after your product is, has become very successful and uh, demand to have a percentage of your earnings on it because you are, um, you are unknowingly infringing their patent. So when you um, are working with a new product, you can – generally ask your patent attorney to perform what's called a freedom to operate search and they will go into a, a patent search that's it, it it is it is a search in similar to the prior art search in some sense but it's it's the prior art that comes up or the art that comes up is um evaluated in a very different way so it's very different from the prior art search although you know obviously it is on it is a patent search but really what they're doing is looking at the claims of issued patents to see if you would be infringing them which um you know, would then let you know whether you were at at a certain amount of risk to be um uh, to be sued for a patent infringement for for selling or or importing or making this product. So. And what about international patents? How does that come into play? International patenting can be quite complicated, just because so many different countries have their own patent systems. Um, there is one simplifying mechanism that's available to us called the PCT or the Patent Cooperation Treaty. Um, one can file a PCT application 
generally also through your patent attorney. Um, and what the PCT application does is allow you to almost the way a provisional application does hold your place and say, you know, I made this invention at this time. Here's my application. And then within a certain amount of time, which is generally around 30 months, you select specific countries that you want to bring that application into. And then only at that time is your application brought to what, what we call the na- national phase in, in, in these different countries. So let's say, for example, you know, you elect Japan as one of the countries that the application would then be sent to Japan, translated into Japanese. A Japanese patent attorney would then shepherd it through the Japanese patent system. Um, and similarly, other countries' applications might do that in America. So since there are so many signatory countries to the PCT, it the filing the PCT application allows you to have this 30-month period before you determine what, what countries or what marketplaces you might seek protection in. Some countries, particularly third world countries, are notorious for violating patents. Uh, is that situation getting better? And do you make any recommendations to your clients as to, say, not selling their product in certain countries in order to avoid that kind of infringement? Well, I, I think that it is getting better just because we're, um, you know, we're, we're becoming smarter as a human race and, and, you know, the, uh, markets are becoming more globalized. Um, countries that don't have good patenting systems or good mechanisms for, um, litigating patents, you know, obviously, um, opportunistic players in those markets know it's unlikely they're going to have a, a patent infringement brought against them. Um, so, you know, that's always uh, of, of concern. You know, luckily, most um, economically advanced countries that have um, uh, markets that, that uh, someone making a technology would care about have reasonable or, 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 or more and more reasonable patent systems as time goes on. The, the issue with not selling your product in, the, in, in these countries that may not have as good of a patent system is somewhat irrelevant. I mean, you could still try to sell your product there because you may never sell, have brought your product there, but someone else may bring it there as part of the problem. So if, if, if you can sell it there and make some money, you know, you, you, it's probably not, not, a, uh, not necessarily a bad thing to just avoid altogether. But, you know, it's worth noting that someone there might copy your product. Well, I would just hate to see my great invention show up on eBay out of Hong Kong. You know? Right. Well, well, that, you know, that's an interesting point. The, uh, the, the good thing about that is your patent rights um, allow you to pre- prevent anyone else from uh, making, using, selling, or importing your invention. So it, it actually doesn't – let's say, for example, you, you have an invention and you only protect it in the U.S. with a U.S. patent. That means in, in any other country, people can make and sell this invention, but they cannot sell it back into the U.S. So at least there is that protection. Are there any questions uh, over the course of this discussion that we should have asked that, uh, or some territory we haven't covered that, that you want to get out to our listeners? You know, I think a, um, an, an interesting question that comes up a lot that, um, you know, when I, when I first talk to a new client, it's especially a, a, you know, one, one in the early phases of business develop, developing their business, growing a business, is um, pursuing patent protection worth it because it is expensive. And, you know, and unfortunately, that is not a simple question to answer um, because, you know, on, on, on one extreme, even if you don't have a business, if you have a great idea that someone at some point might be interested in purchasing or licensing, uh, pursuing a patent can be valuable. You know, on the other end of the ext- extreme, 
even if your idea is not that great or the patent that comes out will not be that valuable, but it somehow bolsters your business because it, it, it is an asset for your business or it gives you, um, you know, some sort of uh, notable uh, benefit with, let's say, investors or vendors, it might be worth pursuing that patent. So, you know, across this whole spectrum, um, you know, th- there are, you know, given all of the, uh, the, the inputs or the, the factors of a particular business venture, it, it may be completely a waste of time and money to pursue a patent, or it may be a huge mistake to not do it. And, you know, unfortunately, the, they have to be kind of weighed out on an, on a, on an individual basis. But it is, it is wor- worth noting that there are times when it may just not be economically wise to pursue a patent simply because, you know, after you've spent however much it costs, let's say maybe $10,000, you're you're likely to never make more than fifteen thousand dollars off of the invention, you know. If if you have that crystal ball, or or this is something you can know up front just from essentially market size and 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 the price for your product, then you know you can make those decisions. So. Well, and I know there's a website out there called Free Patents Online, which is likely representing millions of dollars that were spent to generate patents that have never been turned into products at all. If you were to have our listeners leave with one or two thoughts as a result of this discussion, what would those thoughts be? One important thought I would say is keep your intellectual property and its value in mind because intellectual property is property. It's intangible, but it has value just as tangible property does. You know, everyday examples are personal properties like a car or real properties like your house and your land. Um, so, So being a form of property, it shouldn't be allowed to go to waste in, in, unless that was your intention. So if, you know, if, if you have a, a, a brand that's valuable in the marketplace, that that name is valuable, it, it's worth considering to protect it with a trademark. And if you have inventions that are being made by, you know, engineers or, or even, um, even non-technical people within your company that add value to your company and may be of value to other people, it's worth considering protecting them with a patent or, or you know, at least at least um, looking into the economics of, of of doing it to see if it makes sense. Um, I, I think uh, because intellectual property is is intangible, it's it's easy to not realize it that how incredibly value valuable it can be. Joe, I, I want to thank you today for being our guest and for enlightening our listeners about intellectual property, uh, copyright, trademarks, and certainly patents. Um, how may our listeners reach you? Um, I have a, a website that's probably the easiest way to uh, find me and information about my practice. It's um, www.longtechlaw.com, and uh, Long Tech Law is L-O-N-G-T-E-C-H-L-A-W. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the SCORE Small Business Success Podcast, Been There, Done That. The opinions of the hosts and guests are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of SCORE. If you would like to hear more podcasts, get a free mentor, view a transcript of this podcast, or would like more information about the services we provide, you can call SCORE at 800-634-0245 or visit our website at www.score.org. Again, that's 800-634-0245 or visit the website at www.score.org.